Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 80 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions' industry-leading Evo shared storage servers come with a perfect suite of core features you'll love, like built-in media asset management and powerful integrations for Adobe, Resolve, Avid, and FCP10. They've even made it easier to work from home with their new remote editing tool, Nomad. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and sign up for a demo today. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with two of the editors of the TV series Outlander, Melissa Chung and Liza Cardinale, ACE. I've interviewed Melissa before on Art of the Cut for the movie Mile 22. She also has edited on the TV series Mr. Robot and Battlestar Galactica. She was also an additional editor on Patriot's Day, among other work. Liza was nominated this year for an Ace Eddie for editing the pilot of the series Dead to Me. Other works include the series Orange is the New Black and Insatiable, among many others. The three of us spoke via Skype June 11, 2020. They explained that because the series is shot in Scotland and edited in L.A., the workflow is a little different. Liza's is the first response. Melissa follows that answer directly. Tell me a little bit about the workflow of dealing with this show shot in the U.K. and how that whole thing works with the local editors. They shoot, of course, in Scotland, even though now it's set in America, it's still shooting in Scotland. So they use all local directors and crew. We're not in the same workflow that a normal show in the United States has. So the UK directors, they like to go in when they're shooting and see footage with an editor and have that dialogue open really early on. At least that's how it's been explained to me. I've never worked over there myself, and they were not going to fly over to Los Angeles and work with us. I think that that was never on the table because they're not DGA. In Los Angeles, we were presented with a director's cut, and we would screen that with Ronald D. Moore, the showrunner, and sometimes a couple other producers who were around. And then we would get notes and we would talk about it like, this is our launching pad. This is almost like we're doing a table read. So Ron was very much of a rewrite it for the last time in the edit room kind of writer, showrunner. So sometimes he'd have some pretty elaborate notes that would involve making up a montage that wasn't there or wasn't intended to be there. I. I think I had to do that several times where I would just have to dig around for footage and try to find little moments and then put it together with beautiful sweeping music and and sell it, throw a little voiceover. That's one of the benefits of voiceover is that you can change a lot. And they were rewriting voiceover all the way up till the finish line. He didn't actually just do it with voiceover too. In season one, there was a scene where Randall and Katrina were sitting at the table, or I should say Tobias and Katrina were sitting at the table and... In the scene with the dialogue, Tobias walked around the entire table and then sat back down. And Ron said, I don't want him ever to get up. But he talked the whole time (laughs) he walked. (laughs) And so it was actually really fun because at first we're like, that is not possible. There's no way we're going to be able to do that. And then somehow we made it work. And that happened again later with Galis. He said, I don't want her to walk 
to the fireplace. I don't want her to do all the business she's doing with her hands. And so we had to somehow keep that dialogue or cut out what dialogue we could, but was still making sense. And Ron's usually giving notes from the perspective of a writer. And I think the reason he didn't want him walking in around had to do with the dialogue he was saying, but also with the fact that it distracted from what they were saying. He wanted people to just hear what they were saying rather than watching this movement that didn't really be distracted add to the story in any way. Mm -hmm. so. He's not someone who's ever hemmed in by the footage that is in front of us. So we've had to pull rabbits out of our hat a lot of times. And it was a great education because it was one of my first editing jobs. So it it was a good education for myself to see, wow, so much is possible in the edit, so much that I would never dream of. Because usually I'm responding to footage and I'm trying to just deliver the director's vision more than anything else. But yeah, you can really, you can really bend footage to a new will if you want to. And how did you respond to some of those requests? Um, because some of them sound kind of crazy. Like, that's not going to work. That's a bad idea. Ron is such a sweet and charming person that it, you're not going to really fight him on anything. So when he says that, we're gonna, we say, we're going to try to make that work for you. And then if it doesn't work somehow, we try to explain to him why. But first you just say yes, because he's never coming out of place where he's ever mad, really. <laughs> he's just, he's, yeah. he's always in such a positive place. So yeah, yeah, he trusts us. So like, if he tells you something outrageous, you would never say, oh, no, that's not possible. You will try your best and you will show him what you try. I mean, you might think, oh, God, this doesn't work at all. But he might look at it and say, OK, yeah, great, fine. You did it. He's just not a nitpicker about editing cuts, itself, yeah. about editing itself. So he's more like, what's the, the general impression of this scene? That's what he's after. So he doesn't get lost in the weeds and in the, in the details that, that editors often do. And actually in Battlestar, he would do that too. You had to take really good notes and more than one person had to take the notes because he'll give notes on various points of the episode because he's able to rewrite it in his head and do a brainstorm in his head that I'm not able to even capture the information quick enough as he's yeah. saying it all. But he'll be thinking of moving scenes around like in Battlestar, they write it long on purpose so that they can then move scenes around to make emotional impact more emotional and then maybe make a certain story make a little bit more sense by taking a whole scene out. It's like a writer's room in his head. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I would write notes, an assistant would write notes, and usually Alicia Bissett, our producer, she would take notes too. And then an assistant would look at all of them, compile them, make sure that nothing was missed, that everybody understood him in the same way because yeah he only says it once and then he moves forward and you're not really gonna his forward. time is so limited yes. his time would be so limited be like okay i can be in here for 50 minutes and maybe we have to screen something that's 45 minutes and then there's not much time for talking so you have to be pretty on and then the uh, next time you might come of it. later is it normal for you guys to have assistance in the room for those kind of directorial note-taking sessions or is it just for him because the download is so intense we wanted to make sure we got the notes done correctly. And we wanted to actually pay attention to him while he was talking to us and look him in the eye. And so I would only write him when it was necessary, but the assistant, we would be hoping to be capturing it while someone else did. But then other shows, there's no room for anybody else. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. Usually there's not room because there are so many more producers involved. Like uh, when I work with Genji Cohan, there'll be 
Genji, Tara, maybe the writer, and maybe some other executive producer. So the couch will be filled. There's no space for it. We had Meryl in there too. She was one of the producers that would always sit in with us when she was in town. They were in Scotland a lot. So sometimes it would be um, like this, where it was over some kind of Skype. But that's a great education for those assistants to have that opportunity to be in the room. Yeah. Doesn't sound like much response from you guys because you didn't have much time with him. You just had to let him download. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's not, not much of a dialogue. It's kind of a, we catch it, we make sure we understand. If we're unclear, we could ask in the moment. But yeah, it's more like receiving. So you guys got a director's cut and you're also getting the dailies or the rushes at the same, like basically the day after, or were you, was it much later? We would have the dailies while they were working on it. So we could watch those dailies if we have time, but we'd usually be working on a different episode while that was happening. So when you got a director's cut, were you then having to go through all of the dailies again? I feel like it's better to just be the editor from the beginning because then you know your dailies Usually on other shows, I I would try out some things and find different ways to approach something or make a mistake and be like, that's awful, (laughs) but get Mm -hmm. to play with it a little bit. But with this, we were trying to try to play catch up. It actually made it harder instead of easier, even though it seems like it would be easier. I felt like it made it harder. I think both of us would usually just start cutting from scratch. We wouldn't really use the director's cut except as this great point of departure of conversation. It's like a script to kind of let you know what was Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of what I was going to say. I've talked to other editors that will do a very quick cut. Not everybody does this, but they'll say, I just dive in and I will cut everything with the last take or something like that. They, they won't even watch all of the dailies to assemble a quick scene to, to go, okay, that's what it looks like. Now I can go look for all the performance and then I watch everything. So you guys kind of had that to start with in a way. Yeah, and I think right. I think that makes sense when you're on set or where they're shooting and they just want to make sure they have everything they need and you need to very quickly make sure the scene's going to work or they're going to tear down a set. You need to make sure all those scenes are done. You know, you kind of get to know the project on if that might happen to you or not. Did the two of you have your assistants create the bins, organize them the way you wanted to or were you using the... Yeah, they had to reorganize for us. I had to make string outs for me because I was yeah. really into string outs at that time, especially getting to know all those dailies at once. I found it was easier to organize myself and just having a bin of string outs for every scene and that I'd make a lot of locators. It might have been that um, they, they organized it kind of in a way that we all sort of worked in it anyways because Mikey, another editor, would start in Scotland usually on the first episode and that would kind of set the standard for the organization which was pretty standard organization for bins, usually in frame mode and with the uh-huh. setup separated and markers on the, the beginning of action and yeah. resets yeah. have a different marker. And so it was all pretty standard for almost every project I've worked on. I don't know if it's because of me and that's yeah. my standard. or. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that you said, Liza, that I thought was really interesting was I was really into string outs back then. I'm always interested to hear how your process changes. Like you either work with another editor and you watch how she works and you go, oh, that's kind of cool. I should try that. Or whatever. You just, you're on a new project and the old method doesn't work for the new director's style or whatever it is. Well, I found that with Outlander, we, we kind of had as much time as we needed within reason, but usually... We could take our time to really get to know all the footage and recut it how we wanted. So it didn't feel as pressured as a typical show where they're shooting and you have to 
meet an editor's cut deadline that's looming around the corner of those dailies. So I found that my string out method, while very thorough and wonderful when you have ample time, would just back me up too much. I'd get behind. So I'm always looking for a magical way to cut dailies to make it easy and fast. I still have not found that. Well, script sync is pretty magical when there's time for script sync. (laughs) Oh, God, I think I feel too guilty to have an assistant do script sync for me because (laughs) I've done it. (laughs) I have done it and I know how horrible it is. I know I have too, but I have to say that when you have a certain kind of showrunner or a certain director, you absolutely need it. Because they're like, was there a take that this happens? Oh, well, let me check all eight takes that are all restarts that are in different oh, order. No. How am I going to check that right now in front of this person? Where they want it like that. And they don't know how long it takes. They just expect to see it. And they want to know how many takes there are. And they want to see them right there. So it had to use script sync. Had to. And wow. then it helps me, too, because then when I'm like, oh, is there a better take of this line? <laughs> but <laughs> in the beginning, you still have to watch all the dailies without script sync because there's all these gems in between the lines. So you have to watch all the dailies, get the script syncs later to kind of help you find maybe better performances or to show the director or showrunner. But it yeah. is magic if you have time. <laughs> I can totally see how, especially if a showrunner has worked with another editor or director, whoever has worked with another editor that has used script sync, you don't know how it is that that person jumps to those things as fast as they do, but you just expect the next person to do the same thing for you. Yeah, that's tricky. I, I know a lot of a lot of people who feel guilty about using script sync because <laughs> it's so torturous, right? It it's is, so yeah. torturous to set just, up. But especially with depending on how they shot it. Both of you have done features and a lot of television as well. If you've got a friend that is moving from either the feature world to the TV world, and then also the same question, moving from the feature to TV, what would you tell them? Oh my gosh, you've only ever cut features and now you're moving to TV. Here's what you've got to know. Well, these are the two things that I took away from the difference going back and forth, and they're big. One of them is the schedule. It's hard for a feature editor to go to television, especially a big feature editor who's done a ton of features for for many years, unlike me, like someone who's been just doing big movies, and then they go to television and they're given a tenth the time to do it all. They can't do string outs, watch all their dailies multiple times. They can't write down notes and go back and go through them. You don't have time in, in most television shows. People try to say you have two to three days after they're done shooting. I worked on a show where they tried to act like I did, but but I really had a day and a half. Because I thought, oh, well, they want me to export it. They want to upload it. They want to drive the DVD to some people. That was like, (laughs) for some reason, still (laughs) happening. I actually have a day and a half after they're done shooting to put this together. And in the feature world, you you have only about a week. But that's a lot longer. And so I think it's kind of a shock for some editors that are from the feature world. And I think it's a shock, too, to know that the director you're working with is kind of out of the picture at a certain point. And then you're working with the showrunner. But the other thing that I feel like going from TV to features that I didn't really recognize at first and then realized that the editor and features have a role that I think in television they don't have time for, which is it's a bigger role as a storyteller where they have some of the responsibility on their back of making the story work in a bigger way. I know in television they do Mm. too, but in TV you're just having to figure it out so quickly that everyone's already in the room trying to help you figure it out. But in features I think you're kind of given that responsibility where... You're a storyteller in a little bit of a bigger fashion that I just don't I don't want to say anything that's going to insult anybody. Do you think that's because there are more people in the room in television? There's more brains 
I think because they're in the room so much more quickly and the deadline's so fastly coming upon you where you have to turn it into the network and it has to be done by this time or else we're going to have to pay the sound designers to stay around longer. It's all based on this budget of getting it to everybody at a certain time or else it costs so much more money in the television world that there's no time for the editor to get to be as big a part of that process, which is normally the showrunner anyways. When I've met and talked to these editors who have worked for years on these films, the ownership they have to the story, I feel like there's collaboration that's on a different level. May I ask a follow-up question? Because I would love to do a feature someday, and I, that sounds exciting to have that ownership of that story and to be able to come at it from that angle. Is the writer involved at any point down the post-production process? I mean, on mile 22, we did. We had the writer come in and we needed some lines. I'm not a writer. When it comes to dialogue, I already know that I'm not talented in that area. (laughs) So luckily we did have the writer that was available to come in. I think she came in for a day and we expressed our concerns and she then sent us some ideas because we had cut it down and we had some holes that needed to fill in to make it still make sense. It's an interesting idea that in television, right, it's more of a writer's medium And then in features, although of course there's a writer, that writer does usually just go away. It's just the director. The writer is kind of what the director is in television. The director just goes away in television. The writer just kind of goes away in in features. I never really Mm. thought about that. (laughs) But that's probably why the editor gets a little more that delegated to their position. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I guess it's different if you have a writer-director, but. I love having these kind of conversations. See, we discovered something, that's great. I've got a more artistic question for you, which is, how do you pick good performances? Do you think it's because you're empathetic? Like I've heard many people say that good editors are just great empaths. Or is it acting ability? What allows you to choose a good performance? I would definitely say I call upon my empathy powers a lot. And also just my experience as an audience member my whole life. So... When I'm watching dailies, the first time I'm trying to experience them. Sometimes, especially on Dead to Me, something Christina Applegate's doing is making me cry just watching the uncut dailies. So I'm going to make sure that I, I mark that and I use that later, even if the feeling dissipates as I watch something over and over again. I can't really access that same thing. But you want what your first reaction was to the footage because that's what an audience member is generally just going to watch it once. Yeah. So that's what matters. And then I've worked a lot with actors in theater in my olden days. And I I do think that helps a bit. I'm not an actor at all, but I love actors. I love what they bring to the table. I love their energy. I love working with actor directors and producers also, because I think they have a more heartfelt or emotion-based approach to filmmaking is what I've found. And it's something that I often have my technical hat on a little more, a little more like I'm the craft person, I'm laying the brick, I'm making this work. I have, I'm juggling a lot of information and and software and computers or whatever. And, and sometimes, I'm not going feeling first when I'm deep into, oh my God, I have so much to deal with and I have the stresses weighing in and the deadlines looming. And so I I welcome that person into my room who can just still sit there and be in that feeling place of how is this playing for me? 
And I think Ron was really good, even though he's not an actor. That was something he brought to the table a lot. It was always, how is this scene making me feel? Is this episode falling flat? Am I falling in love with this character? Am I in love with this relationship? Uh, he just always kept that priority. I think, I think, and you can see that in Battlestar. I was such a huge fan of Battlestar before I worked on it. It's such an emotional show. It'd be interesting to watch that during these times. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, the emotion he brought to that show was pretty deep. I, I always told people who weren't sci-fi fans that they might still really like it because it not only was very political, but it was also very emotional. And it was, it was about so much about people and how we all interact in the world. I was a big fan. <laughs> yeah. Well, on Outlander, I think he preserved that by never watching the cut more than a couple times. Right, that's true. Yeah, he almost like ne- he never watched it through. The only way I could Three sort times. of break myself away from that is if I would export it as a QuickTime, and and then watch it as a QuickTime where I couldn't touch the Avid, and I, uh-huh. I would see it s- differently. Or if someone was in the room, and it would help me possibly get embarrassed if there was something weird, and I wouldn't notice that otherwise if they weren't there because I was paying attention to it in a totally different way. The empathy kicks in when right. someone else is in the room. Right. You're you're empathizing with their experience. Right, true. With the audience. Yeah. It, it, it is a big point, your idea of exporting as a quick time. I was talking to Billy Fox about how he would go down to a screening room that they had where he didn't have control. Because you could say, I'm not going to touch it, but it still changes it if you're seeing it where you can't. I did that for every single cut. I would export as a QuickTime and sit on the couch and give notes just on the QuickTime. And I would notice so many things I wanted to fix that way rather than sitting there and watching it from the Avid. One of my mentors is Michael Ruscio, wonderful editor. He did True Blood Pilot, oh, nice. Catch-22 recently. And I mean, he's, he's, he's incredible. And I wish I could bottle whatever he does when he cuts his dailies. He is so fast and so good. And he also directs. I think that's part of it. He's just kind of, he's ascended beyond editing as his main craft. So I called him during the Dead to Me pilot. I'm like, Michael, this is my first pilot. Do you have any advice for me? And he said, just take it home. You need to watch it at home on your TV like an audience member would because it does change everything. Yeah, I can't not. Stop. If I see something I want to change, I cannot control myself in the cutting room if I'm trying to watch it, play it down. Yeah, it's very tough. One of the other things that is a difference between features and TV is having screenings, right? Because how often did you even do screenings at all TV? On the last show I was on, we did Mr. Robot. He would have a screening with the entire crew right before it's locked, which was pretty stressful. (laughs) It was like a test screening. You would get all sorts of things mentioned when you thought you were just about to be done. So it was a little stressful, but it was really helpful because these are people that hopefully didn't read the script. I think some of the crew members purposely didn't read the script, but yeah, that's not normally done in television. That was squeezed into the schedule. Oh, so it wasn't the New York crew. No, 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 not the crew on set. I guess I should say all the post-production crew plus Smell oh, okay. Corp plus anonymous content. It was his company people. So it was more of a Los Angeles crew. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Liza Cardinale, ACE, and Melissa Chung. Whether you're working from home or in your facility, your media has to be secure, organized, and accessible by your whole team. Studio Network Solutions Evo shared storage servers now include Nomad, an easy-to-use utility to help media production teams work from home, on the road, or anywhere in the world. 
Evo shared storage servers provide ultra-fast performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing. Each Evo comes with built-in media asset management software, so you can easily search, tag, and preview all your storage. Evo also features backup and sync tools, so you always know your media and projects are protected, plus powerful integrations to improve your workflows in Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid Media Composer, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off a new Evo system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo today. And now back to my interview with Melissa Chung and Liza Cardinelli, ACE. Do you think that in those screenings, the more people it is, the more you understand about the screening? If it's one person that's a new person, like you've got oh, a producer or an assistant editor or something behind you, that helps somewhat, right, to have somebody else in the room that you can empathize yeah. with. But when it's 100 people... Normally, in a test screening for films that I've been a part of, you write down the questions, it's anonymous, and people write it down. Not only do they not feel embarrassed for asking the question, but they're not trying to just get to talk to the showrunner. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I wanted to ask you about subtext. Uh, I watched an episode that I'm pretty sure, Melissa, you edited called The Bakra, season three. So, and, and this is probably true. This is not just about that show. It could be either one of you just in general. But there were several scenes where they were talking to the governor. And the dialogue was clearly not about what the scene was about. It was about the subtext of whatever, you know, this relationship that the two men had. And, you know, like, what the heck's going on there? And talk to me about how subtext changes editing. I think that's probably my favorite character. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm team Frank, too. So I love Frank. But also the governor and Jamie's relationship. I love their relationship. I thought it was such a cool part of the the books um, and the show. So in the beginning of the scene that I think you're talking about, when once they're in his office in the back, they're first mentioning his son and the governor doesn't know if his wife knows about the son. So first you have to show him looking worried to her. Does she know about the son? And then, then there's the whole playfulness of Jamie and the governor having this relationship that was it wasn't uh, romantic at all, but it was very close and how it would affect her. So you're thinking of the fans and thinking, who would they want to see at this moment while this is being said? When the mm -hmm. son is mentioned, you want to see Claire's reaction and you want to see the governor's reaction. And traditionally, you'd be showing Jamie, right? Because it's his son. But first, you actually show the governor because he wants to know, does, does Claire know about it? And you see Claire reacting and then you see Jamie saying, oh, she knows. <laughs> But normally, you're right. We would just be wanting to see Jamie react to, is his son there? And is he going to get to see his son? Because I guess backstory is that his, his son was conceived by a woman that uh, technically Jamie had, had an affair with her, but not really because he thought she was dead. And there's such a long story to that. But, <laughs> but you know, the governor's in love with Jamie. You want to show that Claire's sort of jealous of this relationship. I, it was so fun to cut that scene. I don't, I, I don't know how to articulate exactly how I made those decisions, but I feel like I was keeping the fans in my mind as I cut it to think about who would they want to see at each moment. Well, I was just going to say on, especially on Outlander and maybe on Battlestar too, there's a lot of time spent on actors looking to each other, 
looks, reaction shots, lengthy ones that settle. We make room for that. And, and not a lot of shows do that. But I think we do that because, or we did that because it was such a character-heavy, loaded, subtext, full, um, everyone has secrets, people know things they shouldn't, or they want to know things they don't. And yeah, I think that was part of just the formula of that show is that we had the ability to space that stuff out as much as we wanted. I mean, especially Ron, he was never ever telling someone to pace something up. And I don't think stars ever did either. So that when that's not your driving principle, you can make more time for these subtleties, this nuance. How are you deciding subtext is so important, just your knowledge of the story or is it outlined in the script? Oh, I think it's you the knowledge of the story, yeah. Yeah, because usually it's the, the point of it is to not be in the script overtly. Right. I mean, I'm thinking of a scene in... Dead to Me season two, which I won't get too into the details because that's also a very plot heavy, spoiler heavy series. But um, there's a scene between Jen and Ben on the beach at night and they're really connecting. So partly it's about just the moment of them having this intimate time connecting to each other. But there is so much subtext based on Jen's experience with his brother. And I won't go into the details, but yes, I had to make sure that I was showing, showing her face a lot so that I could show when she was having guilt or conflicted emotions. Or when you have a great actress like Christina Applegate, I don't have to manufacture that. It's there, I just have to make space for it. When I watched the scene with the governor, it was cut differently, I thought, than if the dialogue had just been the dialogue. Because I know the story so well, because I actually happened to do the episode when they got close, the governor and Jamie too, in, in, in a different episode. So I felt like I owned that relationship too. So I didn't really have to, th- <laughs> I, I feel very close to that relationship. It was already intuitive to me to, to do that because I was there for all the sections of that story. I was there when they first got close. I was the one who cut when he did have the the affair with that woman to, to produce that baby. And when he had to say goodbye to that baby and ask the governor to raise his son, I happened to cut that scene too. I mean, I mean, I wonder if they were giving me these episodes because they knew I loved them so much. <laughs> and then I got to do the episode where they were reunited. So I didn't really have to research anything to know the emotions of those characters because I, I felt like I owned them. <laughs> With that scene, I don't know any of the backstory. Oh, cool. Between okay. The, I, so, yeah, I knew really nothing. Yeah. And I could sense from the editing and from the acting, of course, I'm like, oh, there's a history here. And I bet this guy and this guy, and here's what's going on. So, yeah, I was able to intuit that from... Oh, good. Yeah, so you, could yeah, you yeah. tell that the governor was in love with Jamie? Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, then, and the wife in the meantime is going, what's going on here? Yeah. You know, so, um, so, okay, another question for you. Um, tension, and I'm sure this happens in a bunch of things. How do you build tension with editing? To me, it always seems like you just hold on a shot a little longer than it needs to. What are some of the tricks to saying, oh my gosh, we need to make this scene super tense. What do I do as an editor to create that tension? Liza? Yeah, I'd say exactly what you said. You, you hold things a little too long and maybe you throw in a little more back and forth just looks, no dialogue. And 
you throw down some music, you got to use that music for tension because otherwise it could be a little, I don't know, boring. You never want it to be boring. You want it to be a lean in moment of engagement. So that's usually going to come. I mean, Bear McCrary is a really good composer and he's great with tension. So we had a lot of things to choose from, just a little like rising string. And then you pop the tension with the music and by changing the cutting pattern in the moment that you want to break that tension. So you do have to manipulate that, the beginning of it, the climax of it, if you will, and then when it's done. So the moment of, is someone gonna kill somebody? Uh-oh, uh-oh, I don't know what's happening here. And then usually, at least with Outlander in a scene that would fall away. We didn't really end scenes in a tense place. We kind of resolved things. We had really long scenes. Yeah, I'd say always it's extending the moment and having good close-ups and hoping your actors brought that furrowed brow or the sweat <laughs> dripping down or just something. <laughs> a little something, something. I remember I went to a, uh, I actually taught at a editing seminar that had a soap opera editor was at the seminar. And, <laughs> and he said, the key to, to soap opera editing is at the end of each act, you have to cut to the shot of somebody going, who farted? <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny is the governor actually was from soap operas and he would do that look. We didn't use it, but he had that look down. Well, that look, according to an old <laughs> friend of mine who worked on All My Children as a costume designer, she said that that is called twigging and it is written into the scripts oh, where really? it's say, it's yeah, in. out on... Jamie twigging and it would be him having that that moment maybe a little push in I mean people do it all the time it's still happening not just so operas. that's so funny what's the approach you walk in in the morning you got fresh dailies in a bin and a blank timeline what do you do okay the the thing I'm experimenting with right now is that I watch the last take of every setup first before I watch every take of everything. Because then I have an idea of what all the, the big picture coverage of the scene is. And if it's clear that I'm gonna be in one particular piece of coverage for a moment, then I'm not going to obsess over finding a great read of that line in you know, a wider two shot, which clearly I'm not gonna be in for that moment. So. I, I do find that that helps speed me up a little bit and organize my my thoughts. So yeah, watch the last take of every setup and then go back to the beginning, watch everything. Usually I do start plopping things in a timeline right away if I think it's really good because might as well be there. So I, I my first cut of a scene will be missing lines and it'll just be little moments of things that I found to be good. And then I'll go back in and patch those holes up with moments that maybe didn't jump out at me as being amazing, but they work with the continuity and the coverage that I'm trying to get to. So I, I just protect the great moments, support them. I watch always the last take first because that's when they figured out the geography and how they're going to have people move around. They might change all that. I usually do watch each shutups dailies first and do selects, which is sort of what you're doing. I, I just call it selects and I make a selects timeline. And there might be multiple like of the same line that have two that I have to choose from. And the reason is because sometimes 
when you do realize, oh, I have to use this take because her hair changed or the position of her arm changed and I got to stick with this take, then you have like, okay, which one has most of the best performances? You know, I can kind of play with that a little bit based on what I put in that timeline. I would then organize it by line. If I change my mind later and I think, you know what, I think that other performance is going to be better because of something else that happens in a different scene or whatever, I can go back and easily find it. So like on a feature, I would be using markers and organizing my selects. But if we have a lot of assistance, like we had an assistant that was just doing script sync on mile 22. So I didn't have to worry about that too much once she had time to do that. In the beginning I was doing Uh it and then later she started script syncing everything. So I had my selects and I had a transition to not having to organize them, but but having my best takes. So it kind of just depends on how they shot their footage, how big the scene is, with how soon I might start editing it and how far into I go into making selects. But yeah, I watch all the dailies, always the last take first, because sometimes you watch the last take first, let's say there's six takes and you go back and you, by the time you watch take two, you realize they had changed it so completely that you can't use one through four because they, uh-huh. but then, you know, you have to watch it anyways, because <laughs> the director might say, let me see all the performances of this take in script sync. And they say, I like take one the best. And you have to change everything to take one. You have wanted to say you've watched it because <laughs> if something strange right. happens in it, you better know about it. <laughs> yeah. So you have to watch it all just in case. So with script sync, you're not using that for an initial cut, but you're using it more for notes and revisions later? Because there's no way it would be done in time to use it for a first cut anyways, in our world anyway. It's more for when the showrunner's in the room, but I also use it to my advantage. On Mr. Robot, there was an episode that was all one set, was on a stage, and the actors, they would do the whole act in one read, 15 to 18 times. And then the next act about 13 to 15 times all through. So script sync was really helpful. (laughs) I watched all the dailies and I gave stars next to the ones that had the best performances within them. The first act had like, I think take 18 and 15 and I think 17 to me were the best. And so I starred those so that I knew that if I was having an issue, I'd go back to those first to check for performances. But script sync was a lifesaver because I was able to go back to each of those lines because there's no way to mark it There is other ways, but they would be way more time consuming than script synced was even for the assistant at that point. And also because it was so to script, script sync worked. There was no restarts that messed it up. Restarts. Yeah. So it actually, it actually just transcribed it correctly for for the most part. Oh, oh, you mean even just the the waveform reading? If only we all shot it like that, we'd be. (laughs) (laughs) So I was able to lean on that a lot for that particular episode. But, you know, people don't usually shoot on one set with the actors saying all their lines in one full take. (laughs) No. When in the process do you start building sequences of scenes, putting scene one to scene two? And then what happens when you get to that point? Lately... I've been letting my, I let my assistant string things together. I would hand her every scene as I finished it to do sound work on it. This was Hannah, um, who worked with me on a show called Teenage Bounty Hunters coming out soon. And then she would hand it back to me in longer stretches and it would have some sound design to it. So what I do at that point is I check my transitions. Usually you don't want to be wide shot to wide shot or close up to close up. I want some delineation between scenes. And then that's also when I add music because I don't want to add music when things are broken into scenes. I want it to be more 
uh, a longer stretch that I'm dealing with so I don't overburden people's ears with too much music <laughs> in the stretch. And and with Outlander, it was really fun to actually do transitions because Ron was a little particular about that. He loved starting scenes with a pretty solid orientation in place. Imagine a, I don't know, an outdoor market scene. So we'd always start with some B-roll that we'd track down of somebody selling some rabbits from a whatever and somebody picking an apple. And it, it was just a way that we would, we would always ease into a scene and let an audience know where they were in a neutral way. Did you find you do that a lot? Melissa on Outlander in particular, because I don't I, always do that. I I, most shows are like, get going to the dialogue. I felt like Ron really enjoyed when we could set the scene before the dialogue started, yeah. especially if it was a big area, like a banquet or, or a lot going on. Um, yeah, he liked, he really liked to be oriented, but that's definitely like not everybody's. The set design and the costume design was so extraordinary on this show that a lot of times, too, I felt we were popping out to a wide or a medium more often to showcase the beautiful dress because not only is it so much time they spent on it, but the fans want to see it. The fans of the books yeah. especially because her hair is described so much in the books and her dress is like there's a red dress that was really important that was in one of my episodes and it was really important to draw out the whole thing about the dress and that would happen in many of the scenes where... Uh, we'd be showcasing the world mm -hmm. and making sure we're editing to showcase that. That's part of the fantasy draw. Right. You know, like why people want to go on this ride is they want to feel like they're in another time and place that they can't access, but in a, in a gritty, real way. Did both of you read the books before you became editors on the series? I, I listened to the audio books on the way to work. I live near LAX and I would drive to Pasadena. So I bought the audiobooks and listened to them on the way to work. Yeah, I definitely got, I got swept up into the books and then I didn't have to figure out what the fan perspective was. I could be the book fan as I was editing and I'm like, oh, okay, I know this is a huge deal because it was a whole chapter. It was just described very vividly. It was a very exciting moment of the book. So Melissa was talking about the red dress. I, I would already know what those moments were from reading the book. And that was really helpful. Does that kind of thing help you in an interview to get a job, to be able to say that you understand the book? Or was that not the case for either one of you? Michael Holleran, we already were associated with him and he brought us onto that project. So yeah, we probably didn't need to interview the way, the way that we would normally interview. Folks. Well, I actually did. I had to interview with Meryl and I had to oh. read the book, oh. the entire book before I spoke with her. Oh, well, never mind. <laughs> so I really took it in. I took on that assignment. I read it and I listened to it and I read it and I listened to, you know, I'd go back and forth with the audiobook yeah, and the real book yeah. and I didn't have a child yet. So I had time yeah, to read. I, <laughs> I had just had a child, so. <laughs> yeah, you needed it to be in the car. Yeah, Meryl's, Meryl's a big fan of the books. Her and Ron's wife, Terry, are the reason Ron did that show, is they were huge fans of the book, and they both came to him, because Meryl's really close with Ron, because she worked with him since Battlestar, and, of course, he's close with his wife. So they both <laughs> came to him and said um, that they felt it would be a great next project, and there we go. Is there any danger to have re read the book? I don't know. I feel like in this case, the book just adds to the experience because it's not such a plot heavy spoiler kind of 
drive. That's not really why people are, it's not like Game of Thrones. I mean, I felt like reading Game of Thrones actually did hurt my experience of the show. So I stopped reading it because I wanted to enjoy the show. Maybe I'll go back and read it now, but I didn't like being in the position of, wait, that's not what happened. Oh, they changed that. And it just took me out of the experience. But for one thing, the show is very faithful to especially the major events that happen in the book. So it's more like you're seeing things come to life that you've imagined. At least I like that process. I definitely like reading first so I can have my own internal imaginary experience with it and then the show can just build on top of that um what are you guys doing to mentor your assistants or what what do you think can help bring along an assistant what are you guys doing to bring along those assistants i think that can depend on again the project and how much time there is so on mile 22 with my assistant brad stencil he would edit for both me and the other editor colby so i worked with colby for many years and many years ago, I was his assistant. So that's how he would work is he'd give me a scene and it would be my scene. And I would get director's notes or his notes and it would stay mine as long as possible and possibly till the very end, which it did. And we were trying to do that for Brad as well. In that world, there's sometimes more editors are hired and you you don't get to have that choice of having the assistant keep it till the end. But that's part of the learning process for an assistant, I think it was for me is getting to go through those note passes because otherwise... If you just edit it for the editor and then they take it and they change it, they haven't learned how to polish it. On Mr. Robot, there's so much sound design as if it was being aired. You're doing a sound effects for it goes left to right as they walk past the room. I mean, it's really detailed temp sound effects. The assistant doesn't really have time to edit unless they're wanting to do it on their own time, which I totally understand why somebody wouldn't want to do that. So I think it just depends on the workload of the assistant Um, I think in the bigger budget feature world, there can be more time. You're getting so many dailies in maybe on a certain day that you're like, please help me with this scene while I work on this other scene. And which could happen in television too. But for me in television, it's such a fast pace that I need them to be doing sound effects on a scene that I've already put together while I work on the next scene. So that when I get that scene back from them, I can polish it more with sound effects now in there and put music to it. So it's like an assembly line in television where you're trying to, you know. So unfortunately, they don't get as much time unless you add time. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's something that I I need to do better and I need to make more of an effort with because I'm doing things like this, like talking to you. And I did another podcast where I feel like this is a way that I could mentor and share some knowledge. And there usually isn't time to talk about anything <laughs> when you're on the job especially there's just not enough time in the day. I don't want to be there 15 hours. I want to be there 10 hours. And that's already cutting it pretty close. They want to get that opportunity during their shift. But there's so much asked yeah. of them during their shift. There's no extra time to to learn that part of the craft, except the recap, which is asked of them quite often. And actually, I think with Mr. Robot, with my assistant on there, he was able to edit some deleted scenes to get some experience really with the showrunner because we're all, I had a baby, (laughs) a second baby, so I wasn't there. And the other editor had moved on to another show. We're not sticking around just for deleted scenes to be cut, but they are to wrap the show. So he was able to get some experience from that. But I think think it would be more fair if there was some time, because how are they ever going to move up? And how would anybody know how talented they are or not if they're not ever given a chance? I did not know that recap was was an assistant editor kind of assignment for a lot of shows. Yep. 
that's how most of us started cutting. And that's also how most of us made a showrunner aware of our editing ability because that's pretty much the only thing, at least me as an assistant, I would have solid ownership of. An editor pretty much never grabs a recap and tweaks it. I think on Outlander I did a couple times. Yes, yeah, I did on Outlander. <laughs> yeah, on Outlander I did because there was, especially as we got further down the years, it, 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 there's just so much backstory and we were there, we know everything. Yeah, I did find like that was a nice way to get noticed. And that's the only way an assistant gets promoted is if a showrunner notices them and, and an editor can't really promote them usually. I agree, though, that the notes is one of the most important parts. I mean, just cutting the scene together is okay, but it's really the process of the process that's more important, probably. Yeah, taking it all the way to the finish line. Yeah, some editors are great at that. Like Michael Ruscio, almost every assistant who works for him gets promoted. He's really good at fostering that and making sure that they own a scene and that a director knows. Skip McDonald, too. I haven't worked with him, but friends of mine have, like on Breaking Bad. And that's why they're assistants are always promoted because Skip or Kelly Dixon, they would give the assistants ownership of scenes and then say, director, go over there and work with my assistant. They cut your scene. I mean, Michael O'Halloran did that for me. I mean, he did that for me back on Battlestar. I was editing quite a bit Mm. on Battlestar and Ron directed his first directing debut was, was one of our episodes, 404 of Battlestar. And Mikey would have me edit and he would have me sit in the editing chair and he'd sit back where I was sitting and tell Ron, like, she did this scene, she should do the notes, which Mm. was really a cool experience, especially with Ron. I really appreciated that. That's it for Out of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for nearly 250 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guests, Liza Cardinelli, ACE, and Melissa Chung. I'm Steve Hallfish, and today, a special heads up. I'll be guest hosting over on Pro Video Coalition's Art of the Shot series. I'll be interviewing a friend of mine, David Mullen, ASC, about his fantastic work as the cinematographer on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So if you're interested in filmmaking in general instead of just editing, join me in a week or so for that interview. And as always, if this is a podcast that you got something out of, Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hallfish. Also subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. Then be sure to spread the word and tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend.